0: To church, Morning. Morning. yo, let's go. Yeah. Morning. That's what I'm talking about. Oh man, <clears throat> for those of you who are uh, maybe more new uh, or haven't been here within or, or have been here maybe probably within the last year or two, uh, and we haven't got a chance to meet. Um, My name is Justin. I'm on staff here as the church plant resident. Uh, My my wife, Adriana, my three boys, it it is truly our hope and what we long for to see the city of Orlando informed and transformed by the power of the gospel. And that is, we believe that, that church planting is... Uh, uh, one of the best ways that that desire can be carried out, and uh, and so that's what we've given our lives to, uh, and that's why we're here to do this work with you, our home church of eight years. We've been here eight years, and uh, and so this June, in just a few weeks, we are starting a community group uh, in the Hunters Creek area. And so, uh, I want to invite you to come do life with us in that way. Uh, and, and if anything I said at all is interesting to you or curious or you want to know how Crosspoint is uh, in relationship with church planting and things like that, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be at the connections table and I'd love to chop it up with you and talk that through and, and figure out all, the, all of those things. And so, enough about that. Are you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Yes, me too. This morning we will be in 2nd John and so as you get there I would like to sort of frame up our time. For the next 2 weeks you and I will close this series Love and Light, a journey through 1st, 2nd and 3rd John by studying the latter two. These books, these letters though never contain the word gospel in them are rich in gospel breath and depth. They are soaked in gospel application. Have you ever met someone who never told you they loved you or never told you that they cared for you, but by the way that they speak to you or their disposition in front of you or the way that you've observed their character in front of you, there's no doubt in your mind that this person loves you and cares for you, right? This is sort of the written version of that. It is undeniable that this is John's intention to connect these series of letters to the saving grace of Jesus. And John makes this wonderful proclamation at the beginning of 1 John in verse 3 that summarizes his intentions. He says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's no mystery. John's target audience here are faith having saved folk. He's talking to The church, people who already know the good news of Jesus. And John is writing to them to tell them something incredibly integral to the faith, to living as a believer. He's saying, I'm writing so that your joy, our joy collectively, may be complete. In other words, he's saying when fellowship, when intimacy with God is had family, I don't mean to preach this early in the, in the, in the, in the introduction, but could you sit with that for just a second? That you could be sitting here this morning, a Bible-believing, gospel-knowing, Christian, and have not yet experienced the depth of intimacy with God that makes your joy complete. In 1 John, which we completed last week with Pastor Steve, John has challenged us by describing what the intimate life in Christ looks like and the intimate life with each other. You have to understand those two things in order to. Understand the next two weeks. John is concerned that we, God's children, not only know God intimately and deeply, but live as though that is true. These letters, 2nd and 3rd John, are quite literally the re examining and re discussing of the first two commandments love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. To big brother John, these two commandments, these two ideals, they are inseparable. Loving your neighbor is proof you know and love God. That's why I love these letters, family. John takes what's culturally normative among us, even 2,000 years later, and he turns it on his head. He says, you think your relationship with God is just between you and him that's not true. If you're not among the body, loving the body, serving the body, seeking the body's welfare, guarding the body's dignity, how do you know that you're his? John is concerned, church, that we know truly the truth, not just objective foundational truth of things, but the one who dons the title, the truth, the man who has self-adorned himself as the way, the truth, and the life. That's his primary concern for us. And so knowing all of that, I've tagged our time under this letter this morning, the whole truth and nothing but. The whole truth and nothing but. And I have just two points for us and I'll be in my seat. The truth protected and the truth practiced. The truth protected, or the truth practiced, I should say. That's the first point. And the truth protected. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from the Lord? Second John, we're going to read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. And it reads, The elder... just as we were commanded by the father and now i ask you dear lady not as though i were writing you a new commandment but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another and this is love that we walk according to his commandments this is the commandment just as you have heard just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. (coughs) Excuse me. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, (coughs) but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching excuse me again, has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him partakes in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. (coughs) Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that your joy may be complete. The children of your elect, sister, greet you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Excuse me, I'm sorry. (laughs) Thank you. God, our rock and our redeemer, give us ears to hear your good word this morning. Allow us, O Lord, to be captivated by your word in such a way that our lives are changed. By your mercy and power of the Holy Spirit, allow us to be doers of your word and not just hearers. Would you, O God, gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought to communicate your truth and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm so sorry. Something while I was reading just got caught back there. If I struggle, be gracious with me. I don't mean to make all this noise. November 15th, 1989, in New York City, was the Broadway premiere… Of a play titled A Few Good Men. This little production was a military legal drama that would be so captivating that a film adaptation would be brought to the big screen in 1992 with a star-studded cast. I mean, they brought everybody. (coughs) This (coughs) film… is about a young military lawyer who is assigned an open and shut case, quick and easy, involving the murder of a Marine by two other Marines. Things get complicated when the two Marines on trial state that they were given instruction, ordered by a very distinguished captain to commit the murder our young lawyer decides to take a plea bargain initially, determining in his own mind that the truth is better assumed than uncovered. He even decides at one point to remove himself from the case, feeling that the consequence of the truth was much too high a personal cost. In the end, he does come around and give the case his best effort. And he continues with the trial the film does a masterful job at dealing with the concept of truth. What is it? What's the cost of it? Should it be protected? Should it be known? Some of you know this film. You know it's most iconic line delivered by Jack Nicholson in such a way that makes your hair stand up when he says it. You can't handle the truth. Why do I bring this story before you? Look at that, already prepared. You already know. Why do I bring this story before you? What's the point? Our text today deals with similar concepts, truth and what we should do about it. John's letter to us is not merely what's true and what is not, like you would find in a courtroom, though it does deal with that. John's main emphasis is what believers should do about who the truth is because the who informs the how. Who is the truth? How should those who profess to believe in the truth behave or respond? You cannot argue that John isn't deeply concerned for the church's outward discipline. I mean, immediately, John doubles down at the very first verse and makes clear who his audience is. Look at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be in us forever. (coughs) John's language is illustrative for sure, but it's clear nonetheless. The church is the bride of Christ. And so when he says the elect lady, he is referring to God's chosen method of uniting his people. The church is the lady and the children are her people. We are the children of God, belonging both to God and to each other as the church. And he's addressing us, not those outside of us, not those who are among us and don't really know where they stand. No, he is addressing the church, God's elect people. But the terminology here, lady and her children, these are endearing terms, right? They're as if I were to refer to you as my brother and my sister. They're meant to make you feel loved, connected, elevated, full of affirmation. This is John's intention here. John is addressing us, full of love affirming who we are grounded in God. This is deliberate intentionality. And there's a lesson for us that's not the main point of the sermon, but praise be to God that His Word is so rich. Shouldn't we speak to each other with the same manner of care, with the same manner of love, with the same intensity of intentionality? shouldn't we? John's greeting is consistent with his message. Christian love is by no means mere sentimentalism or humanistic compassion, but it's motivated by knowledge of the truth which has been revealed in Christ. Truth is the basis of love. And foundationally, God in triune cosmic wonder is both the very essence of truth and the very essence of love. He is, as the apostle writes, before all things, it is because of the love of God that I can love my wife. It is because of the love of God that I can love my children. It is because of the love of God that I can love you all, my brothers and sisters, because God is truth, God is love, and God is ours. I love the next part. Instead of wishing grace, mercy, and peace to us, John announces that we will experience it in truth and love. Grace, mercy, and peace, he says, will be with us. I like this breakdown from a commentary I read. It said, mercy, uh, grace describes all that God has done for us in Christ. Mercy Is God not giving us all that we deserve? Peace is the resulting state we have with God and with others that results from the application of God's grace and mercy to our lives. In other words, these three components are gifts from God to us. The most important gifts we will ever receive, they are everlasting gifts, gifts that keep on giving, gifts that when you think you forfeited it, uh, gifts that when you, when you think you're too messed up to receive them. Gifts that when you think you aren't good enough to embrace them. God taps you on the shoulder and gives them new again each morning, unfiltered and unused. That's worthy of an amen, but I'm going to let y'all rock. I know y'all don't like when I goad you and they're talking back to me. I'm going to say it this way. John says, the church will always have these gifts. And they come to us in truth and love. In verse 2, John says, Truth will be with us forever. And then in verse 3, he says, So will grace, mercy, and peace, because they come from truth and love. You gotta love John's consistency. The minute you try to over theologize this message, the minute you try or or are tempted to, to think that this is far too deep a concept to understand, the minute you think this is too scholarly, John says, no, 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 no. It's simple. Truth and love. Truth and love. And they come from Jesus who is the truth and lived as he loved. Amen? Immediately, John gets to the point of writing his letter. He has two central concerns. The church's obedience to God and our resistance to listening to false teachers. Verse 4 begins his first point. The truth practiced. Let's read. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've had it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John expresses his joy over the fact that some of the believers are faithfully living the Christian life. This means that while John was away from this church, he heard, experienced, encountered the testimony of believers living as they should. Some people were walking in the truth and some were very obviously not, but for those who were walking in the truth, John says it brought him great joy. Well, was it because they were moralistic Christians? No. Was it because these Christians made idols of their good behavior? Absolutely not. John is not joyful because these people reached some sort of perfection. Now, the basis of John's joy is the same as the church's obedience. It's God. This is a call back to 1 John 2. Go with, their, go with me there quickly. It's one page over. 1 John 2 verse 3. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Well, John is saying the assurance of salvation is found in a life full of obedience. In other words, you know you're saved based on the way you live. Keep going. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In other words, a life of obedience produces maturity. The more we walk in this life, the more grown up, the more mature, the more sanctified we become. And we continue, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, a life of obedience imitates, reflects the glory of Christ. Right belief and right behavior always go together. Only when we as believers know truly who we believe in, what we believe about him, and why we believe it, can we be put in a position to behave like it. We can recall the words of Paul here from Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And Paul uses the word worthy here. As to say, there should be among us, family, a deep conviction, a God given desire to live in a way that demonstrates, walks in step with the gospel in which we believe. But I want to take a moment to sidebar. Let me be clear. For those of you sitting here who come from a church background like I do, talk of obedience can be off-putting, right? It can feel like perfection-based faith, like your favor with the Lord is dependent on your ability to be obedient. I want to talk to you a second because I feel this. I felt this while prepping. I feel this way personally when I read texts that deal with obedience. And it presses on icky feelings because you've been in environments where this sort of language has been abused. skewed our view of acceptance and grace. Talking of obedient living can trigger unnecessarily but understandably shame or guilt to arise in us. Family, may God settle our defensive hearts. May he give us ears to hear. This This is not moralistic deism. John John is not saying obedience is key to salvation. He's not saying that. That's a false gospel. What he is saying is that this is what the gospel applied to our life looks like. This is progressive sanctification, is what the theologians call it. He is saying obedience is not the key to salvation. It's evidence of it. Obedience is what happens, not can happen, not what should happen, but it is what happens when we live intimately in fellowship with Jesus. Let's let's not be afraid of this. John comforts us then by reminding us that this isn't some new standard or some new way of living. He's not making up something new. He says, no, it's been like this since the beginning. This was the instruction God gave to you and gave to every one of your forefathers before you. Love one another. Love one another as evidence of the love we have for God. This This is not society's definition of love. It's not a a fickle, feigning interest. This is an active word. It's more than feelings, more than sentiments. It's an act of will. But an action we cannot do without being transformed, without our desires being changed. We can't do this without a renewed mind and a right spirit and a new heart because our obedience to God's command is the very means by which we love each other. Only a transformed person can do this. A person who heard the gospel, received it in grace, it changed their lives and they were never the same since. Family, we have been so generously, so wonderfully loved and it's disproportionate to what we actually deserve. And because that is true, we've now been freed to love others the same exact way. Those here in the church, those outside the church, those who have hurt us, those who don't deserve it, we must love them because God spared no love towards and no light shone on us. We are called to freely share that love, freely point to the light because God has commanded us to, and because He's commanded us, we long to fulfill that command. John makes a pivot to his next point that seemingly changes topics entirely. He moves from love and obedience to false teachers and false doctrine. It's actually a natural transition though. As we practice the truth, we should also protect it. And he means for us to protect the truth by doing two things, looking out and keeping out. Look at verse 7 with me. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. If the first set of verses were to help us understand what a life in Christ looks like, then the next set of verses are to help us look out for anything that is counterfeit. Once upon a time, I was the manager of a very popular sneaker store. One of my responsibilities was when the store got full, I had to take on the cash register, help line move, help people get out, right? One of the most tedious things about working the cash register was not handling money. It was finding fake bills because they'll look any, some are obvious and some are not. And there's a process, a really long process. You got to put them under a light. You got to swipe them with a marker. You got to touch them, feel them. There's this whole thing. Now, here's the thing. What's great is that most times fakes were easily spotable, right? You got a bunch of money in your hand. You can see, "Eh, that one don't look right. They would look different. They would feel different. But other times, there were some that were surprising. Every bill over over 20 had to get scanned. And so you you would look at it like, I would have not expected this to be fake. This looks real. This is crazy. But when you put them under the light, when you certify them with ink, you'll find out whether it's real. Since John has laid for us what integrity in the faith looks like, we can't have fakes among us. The Greek for deceivers here is ones who would lead you astray. That's the definition there. So if there was a deceiver among you, they would lead you into error. John wants us to be vigilant, to look out for the fakes. John is saying it may not be easy to spot them. It's going to be tedious. They're among you right now. However, when you become familiar with the real ones, If you are constantly among the people of God, well, then when you put them in the light, when you read the word with them, when you pray with them, when you witness how they love their neighbors, you'll be able to verify their authenticity. You'll find the deceivers out. Then John takes it a step further. He says, and it isn't just that they deceive. Some of them are actual antichrists. They hold false doctrines and false gospels. Their intention is to distort your views of Christ and have you doubt His work. They don't confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. That word confess is good because John uses it the same exact way in 1 John 1, 1.9. He says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John writes, connecting two types of confessions, confession that the lovers of Jesus partake in, confessing their sins before God, and the Antichrist confession. They don't confess that Jesus has the power to deliver sins. They, they don't confess that Jesus is actually Lord. They confess That Jesus doesn't have the power to save his friends and save them forever. See, the follower of Jesus abides not just in the humanity of Jesus, but in the deity of Jesus. In other words, the Christian holds tightly with a mighty grip that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and therefore is able to deal with our sins justly. You're not hearing me this morning. The Christian protects the truth when the Christian is being protected by the truth. We cling to truth by being clung by the truth. When we hold tightly to our belief In a strong and mighty Savior who can conquer sin and the punishment of sin. But not only that, we hold tightly for our own protection that Jesus protects us by applying that work to us. I'll help you out again. When my youngest son, Kian, some of y'all know him, little one, right? He's a menace. He's very strong. Very strong. There, Carlos said facts, see? He's very strong. And you could feel it in his grip. He's a boy has got a tight grip. When we would go walking, he was smaller. When we would go for walks outside, one of the things he would do, d- dads, you've done this before. You hold, you, you got, like, they're holding on to your fingers and you kind of like lock up and you lift them up, right? And they're like, right? You know what I'm talking about? Or you don't know what I'm talking about. Y'all gotta talk back. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so you would be walking and they would hold tight and then you would, eh, okay, thank you. All right, cool. So, Ken, I would tell him all the time, you got to hold on tight. You got to hold on tight. You would feel it. He'd, He'd grip your hands real tight and then you would launch him and then he would come back down, right? I would toss him up in the air. I could feel his grip tightening as he goes in the air. But what Kian doesn't know, what Kian doesn't know is that he can't hold on longer than me. What Kian doesn't know is that he can't hold on tighter than me. What Kean doesn't know is that though I've instructed him to hold on tightly for his own protection, I'll never let him go. Oh, you're not hearing me this morning. You don't understand that daddy is the one actually holding on tightly when you go through life. That though you may be holding on tightly to Christ, daddy's got you tighter than that. I'm sorry, family, when life gives you pain, when life brings you fear, when life brings you anxiety, or when antichrists and deceivers come into your life to make you question, make you doubt, make you feel unsure, John says, hold tightly to the truth, hold tightly to doctrine, but more than that, know the one whose title is truth, who is holding more tightly to you and though it feels scary when you're in the air, though it can feel exhilarating with all that life brings you, know that daddy's got you, and that daddy's keeping you, and that daddy's holding on to you and making sure you'll never fall. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to go back to verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead, verse 9, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. Family, heed this warning. This is serious business. This is our big brother looking out for us. He's, if, if there are antichrists and deceivers among you, you could find yourself drifting too far if you give in to these false doctrines, give your heart and your mind to the people, you can find yourself outside the safety God promises you. And what you prove then is that you were never really in the fold of God at all. Here's the thing, Church: you very likely, very, very likely, will not meet a deceiver or an Antichrist and go on first look. That's one. Very likely. You're not going to walk into a room and be like, good, good Antichrist. It's not how it's going to happen. What is going to happen is that you'll have something like friend or something like family. And they're good people. Probably some of the best kinds of people. They're going to be people who love on you better than those with supposed right doctrine love on you. Which proves they don't got right doctrine at all. It'll be subtle. It'll come naturally. You'll gravitate towards them. And then what'll happen, not in one day, not in a week, but over time, years, it's a long game. What'll happen is that you'll begin to believe ever so slightly that the gospel in its fullness, hear that, that the gospel in its fullness isn't the most important thing anymore. And you'll drift and drift and drift like swimming in an undercurrent at the beach, slowly moving you further and further away from the lifeguard. This is why, and John says next, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him partakes, takes part in his wicked works. John says, abide, rest in, hold tightly to the teachings and life of Jesus. And you will have both the father and the son. But abiding, submitting to, living in light of these teachings, must also mean a strong response against those who are preachers and purveyors of false doctrine. At first, John's language here isn't palatable. You could be honest. At first, his language here isn't palatable. But here's the context. In the Greco-Roman world of John, religious people, even Christians, would go door to door. And they would knock, And they would preach, and you would welcome them in. Religious people, including Christians, up until this day, depend on the support of fellow believers for hospitality. That's biblical. We ain't gonna argue that. Actually, next week we're gonna talk about that. And so, what John is saying is that don't let these people in your house, they're gonna knock on the door. Don't let them in the house. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be aggressive. Just don't offer your support. Still don't taste good, right? Let me help you out here. The word greeting here in the Greek is not a literal greeting like hi or hello. It's deeper than that. English fails us here. you study other languages, you come to learn English is kind of garbage. We don't have a word for this. We only have examples for this. The greeting here is more attached. It's more affectionate. It's something along the lines of, it's good to see you today. It's something along the lines of, I wish you well. It's a more intimate interaction than just hi or hello or how you doing. John is saying, guard your heart. Don't even let this person get any part of your heart. Keep your affections at a distance. Now, I know how it sounds still. It sounds aggressive, maybe even intolerant. It is. It 100% is. And there's a reason why John connects our doctrinal alignment to our joy together in these verses. It's because your misalignment affects our joy collectively. There's something for us to consider here, family. And I want you to wonder this for yourself. Have we, at least to some degree, been influenced by the posture and culture of this world when thinking about what is actually false doctrine and is it okay? Have we accepted a posture of tolerance towards the things the Bible calls us to guard our hearts against? I think there's an even deeper underlying question here. And I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this this morning. Are we experiencing true depth and intimacy with Jesus to the degree that what grieves him grieves us? And I'm not talking about taking a stand on pseudo-biblical political points. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking real, evident unison fellowship with Jesus, in sync with his emotions, aligned with his convictions, soaking in his word, listening to his voice, following in the way he, we, in he, the way he leads, excuse me, are we family longing to stand in the whole truth and nothing but, standing firm in his grace, living confidently in his love, in fellowship with him and with one another, contending for the truth, practicing the way and protecting it too, because only then can we fully begin to understand that it's not the strength of our grip that keeps us, but it is the strength of the one whose grip you're in. I got to close it up here. I know. That studying texts like this that deal with obedience can make it seem like there's this daunting task that'll never be fully accomplished. That that maybe this is overwhelming to you. Maybe you find yourself this morning wondering if you yourself can handle the truth, if this is all that it means. Uh, Whenever grappling with texts like this, I think it's important that we always circle back to Paul's words to Philippi and Rome. Have this in mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says in Romans, for I am sure then that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Family, Christ came fully God and fully man, deity wrapped in human flesh God adorned in sinews and muscles, a king not on a throne but in a manger, a liberator, not moving with guerrilla tactics but on the low, living as a servant, doing the will of the Father, humbling himself in obedience, obedience to the point of the cross. And he obeyed the Father completely, obeyed the law entirely, <laughs> obeyed the traditions in fullness, fulfilling the requirements of God's justice. Not for his own sake, but for ours, so that we may live eternal, so that we may join in his plan of redemption, so that we may be heirs to the kingdom, because there is no greater love than this, than one who would lay his life down for his friends. He is to be obeyed as he protects, so that we can sing with joy, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. Oh, what a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. Could we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Stand with me in worship.